Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week, we are speaking with Peter Carey, the two-time Booker Prize winning novelist, and we're going to be talking about Trump, conspiracy theories, and what did happen in 1975. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. Peter Carey was in Cambridge yesterday to talk about his new novel, A Long Way From Home, and I caught up with him just before he went on stage at the Cambridge Literary Festival. Some of the usual health warnings apply. We were on a slightly squeaky leather sofa. I think someone emptied a year's worth of recycling outside the window while we were talking. We weren't just talking about his new book. One of the reasons he's such an interesting novelist is that a few of his novels are really political, including some that he's published in recent years. So we started with one called Parrot and Olivier in America, which is about my political hero. I've probably mentioned this before, Alexis de Tocqueville. It's Peter Carey's reimagining of Tocqueville's famous trip to the United States in 1831. And if you listen carefully, you'll notice I get the date wrong when I'm talking to him. We also discussed the novel he wrote before, the one that's just come out now called Amnesia, which is about a whole host of things, but it's also about conspiracy theories. And again, you'll hear in a minute, he really doesn't like that term. But the plot at the heart of it is what happened in Australia in 1975. I'm aware a lot of people might not think that that's the biggest story in contemporary politics. That's partly what the book is about. That's why it's called Amnesia. Even Australians have forgotten a lot of this. But Peter Carey tells us what he thinks really happened. It's quite complicated, but it's also really interesting. And I hope people will think it's got a lot of resonance for now. But we started with Tocqueville, and I began by asking him why he thinks, and he said this a few times recently, that reading about a Frenchman travelling to America in the 1830s is a way to understand Trump now. Well, I think the thing that he was terribly worried about was that somebody like Donald Trump <laughs> would arise and would be popular and would be voted for, and they would be an illiterate buffoon, and they would be president. But I should memorise where he said that because I can no longer remember because when I'm working on a book, I'm sort of swatting and making notes. You know, a number of years afterwards, I've forgotten what that is. When I'd finished the book and Trump was elected and I started to look at the book and I was thinking, I was not nearly obvious enough about this and, and maybe I didn't really make it clear that, you know, in fact, the Olivier character was actually completely correct and Parrot, who was triumphant and happy in the new world, was wrong. And among the sort of stupid and subtle things I did, as far as Parrot at the end with his happiness and his new business, was there was going to be a financial collapse the very next day. But you'd really have to be an idiot to sort of find that out, because you'd have to be the sort of person that would look up that date and figure out that no normal reader would know that I was saying that. So too subtle. One of the things that's always struck me about Tocqueville, and he is famously paradoxical writer but he captures that feeling that you get with American politics that it's reckless it's crazy it's wild yes. and it's also sort of complacent and actually quite passive there's that sense I get with Trump that 
he's part of the reckless side of American life, but you also have to be amazingly complacent to think that you can survive a presidency like that. And Tocqueville, I feel, saw that right early on, that these people were capable of doing the craziest things, partly because they believed that they would never have to pay the price for them. So that, to me, is the kind of Tocquevillian moment we're living through. Yes, and it's so that you can talk about shithole countries and not even occur to you for a moment that that actually might affect your relationship with African countries, for instance, which might, allow you never thought it before, be of some consequence to the country. Is that, is that the sort of thing that you mean, the sort of blithe, ignorant... And there's the ignorance of him, yeah. and then the people who voted for him, many of whom might share some of that ignorance, but quite a few of whom don't, yeah. who kind of feel, yeah, but we've got these sort of robust institutions that are designed yes. to sort of bend and accommodate this kind of thing, and at some point they're going to snap. I think on the run-up to these elections, and I think because my wife and I both, she's English and I'm from Australia, so we're sort of both foreigners and suffer from foreigners' anxiety, and we for a long time thought there was a really good chance that Trump would be elected. And all of our American friends said, it can't happen, nothing like this has ever happened and won't ever happen. And I always think, you know, Americans do sort of only believe in a future that's occurred before, which is why I think they love statistics in business and sports, because... You know, there has never before been somebody who did such and such at such and such a number. So uh, where were we going with that? I've got no idea. That's okay. So you, you've been in New York since 1990, is that right? Yeah. So some people look at Trump, I mean, it relates to what we were just talking about, and they see this kind of break. It was all going along fine, and then this guy comes along with his charlatanry and his nonsense, and, and the people fall for it, and it all goes off the rails. The other view is that this has been building for a long time. So if you saw it coming, do you, are you more of a continuity? This is, Trump is not this sort of... I'm a live-in-terror sort of person. The reason I wrote that book was really because, because Bush and Cheney and Cheney and Rumsfeld were there mm. and I thought we were on the brink of, of totalitarianism or were there already. And uh, that's why I wrote it in fear and rage and so on. And so, you know, when... Obama won, I wept in front of the television, not thinking that he was a radical, but just in sort of relief that we were not there yet. When you think about Tuckle and democracy, I mean, surely the essential thing of democracy working is you really need to put an enormously high value on education. And, I mean, the thing that America has done, you know, so it's, you know, the aristocracy and gone and there's no kings and queens... But if you're going, to, you're going to have voters, they should be. You should pay them the courtesy of offering them a good education. And I think with a good education, you wouldn't really be in this awful situation. But no one values education anyway in the United States, so I guess it doesn't matter. And I think one of the things he didn't see, and maybe he did, and I've forgotten it, is that the big gap that would open up. He can't have seen it because I don't think he could have known a society in which you know, half the people go to college and half don't. Mm. But that, it's the same in this country too. It may be the same in Australia. Certainly true in Europe. The big political gap is... You know, the question you need to ask of someone who wants to know how they voted is, did you go to university or not? And then in the States, yes. it's, it's more acute because Republicans aren't just, we didn't go to university, but the university is the enemy. The university is where they're breeding all of this nonsense. Yeah. That's, it's newish anyway, I think. You mean the... the Republican hatred of, edu- of yeah. education, but not edu- education, but not for their High children, education. because yeah. their children will go to all the right places and will continue to rule because of those places as well. So it's more complicated, perhaps. Anyway, 
Okay. The novel you wrote before the new one, Amnesia, which I read with a lot of pleasure over the weekend, it's about lots of things. It's about conspiracy theories. You might not be happy with the term. I mean, we can see. No, I hate the term. Yeah, yeah I thought so. Uh, well, it's, it's one of those terms like political correctness, you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, so we won't call it that. <laughs> uh, it's about what, uh, among other things, what might or might not have happened in 1975 yeah. in Australia, which is something I've always been interested in. One of my favourite buildings in the whole world is the old Parliament House in Canberra, mm -hmm. and it's got the 1975 room in it, which I don't think tells the true story. That's, um, that's, that's now a hotel, right? The old Parliament House. It's a, well, when I was there, it was a museum. Is it now oh. a hotel? Oh, well, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, Gough Whitlam was a, a Labour Prime Minister. Not hard left, but left. No, not at all. Uh, Centre left. Though some of the people around him were further to the left than he was. It's a lot. I mean, Jim Cairns particularly. And the Governor-General, uh, who works for the Queen, yes. who worked for the Queen, yes. got rid of him. So you wrote about it in a novel, mm -hmm. and it's not about conspiracy theories. But what do you actually think really happened? Well, I think that, like all things, it was, it was terribly complicated. I mean, it couldn't have happened if, I think, thinking back at it, if a Queensland senator had not died, a senator who would have normally been replaced by a Labour Party person and convention was broken and a Conservative was put in his place. So there was that sort of vulnerability. But firstly, the ruling class were in a total rage about having a Labour government was doing all sorts of things they didn't want. And, you know, if you look at, when you talk about the Australian ruling class and you talk about the people who own newspapers like Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch, you'd have to say that they were terribly important in what happened because as things hotted up, they poured gallons of misinformation into the mix continually. One of the things was that uh, we thought that we had, you know, a democracy. We thought we had an independent country. We thought Americans were our allies and friends and always had been, and we liked them, and they liked us, and we'd fought beside them and so on. Uh, we shared intelligence with them. And when Goff came to power, they discovered that they knew there was a base at a place called Pine Gap, uh, which they're still using today. And, and actually, indeed, you can't send drones into certain spots in Afghanistan, I believe, without operatives in Pine Gap in Australia doing that work. And throughout the period it had been there, no Australian Prime Minister really knew what happened there exactly. As it also happened, the lease on Pine Gap was about to, to expire. And Goff said, I think to the American ambassador, that they would not necessarily renew this lease. He said, you know, if you try to bounce us, we will take steps. So he really threatened the United States. And that didn't go down very well. And there's enough of this to know that it's not just me making the stuff up. It's sort of, there's enough record of this. And on top of which, you had people in the, who were ministers in the new government calling Americans mass murderers because of the bomb. I guess it was maybe the bombing of Cambodia. I can't remember the timing of it. But anyway, it was Southeast Asia. It was Vietnam and all associated countries. And they certainly weren't used to being talked to like that. But the thing about Pine Gap, I think, was the really crucial part of this. And Goff also outed the head of the station at Pine Gap as a CIA guy, which was unthinkable. We know that the, uh, the CIA were in a rage. And we know that because there's a telegraph on record that they were in contact with ASIO, sort of saying that our Prime Minister was a threat to our country. And ASIO, of course, but like Secret Services everywhere, tended to be more on the right anyway. So the, the Secret Service, our Secret Service, ASIO, was certainly 
much closer and more comfortable with the CIA than they were with our elected leaders. So there are all of these things going on, which, you know, the, I mean, did you ever watch The Falcon and the Snowman? What was his name? Tim, was it Timothy Boyce? The, the, the thing that turned Timothy Boyce into a... And he was working for, I think, a CIA... What do you call those things? A CIA... And, uh, I have seen that film and I'm not trying to... Anyway, <laughs> you, you, yeah. his father was deep America and he was really distressed to see what his country was doing to Australia. And so there's a thing within the film where there's this little bit of information that sits there and which when that film showed in Australia and everybody reviewed the film, nobody said a word about that. I mean, there's so many things. I could go on and on. And, and one of the things that no one would lend money to this Labor government and they wanted to, as they said, buy back the farm. And so they concocted there was meant to be oil money. And oil money, Arab money, was generally talked about in the press as some sort of really dark, evil sort of, sort of a thing. And so there were ministers going out there trying to raise money. One of them became the victim of a sort of a scandal where he was meant to get this huge commission. This is bullshit. But, but they did produce this man called Kamlani, who was meant to be going to produce all this money for the government. And they set him up with a photograph of him arriving in Australia with a big bulging suitcase, which was meant to be evidence of all the lies of the Labor Party, whether they were secret policemen beside him or just big men in suits. And it was big front page everywhere. But nothing ever happened. I mean, nothing about that suitcase or that evidence ever appeared anywhere. So this is a bit of a mess, I'm telling you, because there's so much stuff in the story... But in the end, you know, the situation in the upper house was precarious enough. No one had ever in the history of Australia ever denied supply. So, you know, when the money bill goes through, it's a matter of course that it gets approved. This upper house, with the help of the new senator, denied supply. That seems to be unconstitutional, that it didn't really matter. And so at that point, there's a constitutional crisis... And this old right-wing Labour Party guy who's been sort of poncing around in his top hat representing the Queen suddenly becomes a person who can dismiss the elected head of government and appoint Malcolm Fraser, the Conservative, as the new Prime Minister. And it's always interesting to reflect on that day when the, when the unions... I mean, that's, that's the time for a general strike. You'd have to say, who was, who was the person who was friendly with Americans? and spent a lot of time at the American Embassy, who persuaded the unions to sort of stop a general strike. Well, that man was Bob Hawke, who then becomes the... I'm sure they said, Bob, you know, when your turn comes, you know, we'll be there for you. Anyway, Bob persuaded people against the general strike, and maybe that was a good thing, because there's evidence that suggests that John Kerr had, had the army on standby, Unthinkable things happen, so I don't know. It, on the one hand, it's a very Australian story. It's a very distinctive story. On the other hand, I'm sure people listening to this now, some of whom may know it, I'm guessing most of whom don't, would think Corbyn, would think the possibility of a, a Labour government. And a lot of those dynamics... You mean could... Labour government being unacceptable to the ruling class? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's always been the fear. There's, mm. Do you know this novel by Chris Mullen called A Very British Coup? Yes, it I was think, made yes. into a TV series. I, I'm the TV series guy. That's yeah. what I saw. <laughs> it's a yeah. you know, it's a fictional account yes. of a Corbyn-like person. This is back in yes. the 80s, yes. but it has so many of those features. And 
as it were, the Murdoch-style figures are always there in the background. Yes. And, and your novel, it's a novel, but it's about the forgetting of this. You know, that Australia, Australian democracy is, in a sense, built on this moment. This is the decisive moment. And yet no one really wants to confront any of it head on. It's just folded in to the story. No, we, we, I'm going to say this. Although when I went to research this, I couldn't find documentary evidence of what I'm going to say. But my memory of the time is it's certainly true that people began to refer to this as the coup. And uh, that they could say that at the same time. So when you said to them, you know, this really, really was a coup, they said, no, 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 I don't think it was. It wasn't anything like that, Pete. It was, you know. <laughs> but they, did, they referred to it as the coup, like, well, denying it that any such thing had, had occurred. And, yet, and when you also, when you think of, you know, the Australians' relationship with America, you know, they criticise America and they say, oh, mate, you know, Americans, they've got no sense of irony. You know, it's just... Uh, I, heard the present Australian Prime Minister say to a, a room of, of uh, New Yorkers at the Met, you know, Metropolitan Museum of Art, most of whom were Jewish, <laughs> that, that Americans had no sense of irony, which was a nice moment. Anyway, sorry, that's, that's discursive. Um, uh, I have a question about coups, because that was one of the things I was going to ask you about, which is, well, there was a coup in Zimbabwe recently, and that's, you know, in one sense, what a coup is meant to look like. Men in military uniforms appear on TV mm. and the... Yeah, and, and we may not know who's behind it, but we sure know what's going yes, on. Absolutely. And then you have what happens in established, mature democracies mm. like yours and ours in the United States, the United States yes. uh, where people talk about coups all the time. Some people think that Trump is the victim of a coup. Some people think he represents a coup. It's almost been devalued. And yet the thing itself, no one will confront, which that is has, who's running the show. Yeah, absolutely. I do remember pre-Trump having a conversation with somebody who would not publicly repeat this now, but someone with a history in diplomacy. And I said, really, you tell me, you know, if this guy is elected president and he behaves in the way we think he will behave, don't you think that the establishment will reach a point where they won't want him? Do you think, do you think there's a possibility of a coup in the United States? And he said, no, American military, much too conservative. No, no, CIA, possibly. <laughs> so I'm someone who, who had that thing of, like, what if? What if this man is elected? What will people do? What will the people in power do about it? Well, it seems like the people in power are sort of quite happy. Well, some of them, anyway. Well, and he made the smart move of putting the generals in his government rather yeah, well, than... some of the generals. So I don't, I'm not sure that the generals are sort of totally cohesive in their views of, of this. So... And also, when you think about that, and you think, well, you know, he's perhaps not a healthy or good, good person for that d- democracy, and then you find yourself thinking, well, maybe it would be better if there were a coup. Well, of course it's not. The only thing worse than Trump having his yeah. finger on the nuclear button would be the general saying, yes. we're keeping it to ourselves. Yes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a sort of, I think it connects a bit with Tocqueville, which is 
it's a feature of our democracies because democracy is the sort of fact of life. We're so used to it, we almost can't imagine it could come to an end. That we talk about coups and plots and this and that, and I won't call them conspiracy theories, but there's a huge amount of people pouring suspicion on everything that they hear. And at the same time, the central questions about who's running things, people are avoiding those. You know, it, the coup talk is all on the surface, yes. but the real story, which, among other things, and amnesia is about investigative journalism as well, we're further away from uncovering some of that. Yes. Uh, I don't know where one goes into that. They're talking about conspiracy theories. The only thing I'd think is there's a huge workforce who are employed and have health insurance whose job is to help create conspiracies. And if you look at the... Sure, if you looked at the car park around the Pentagon, you'd see a lot of people whose job it is to conspire. So mm. the conspiracy theory thing is why I sort of object to the theory thing, because yeah. I think... There really are conspiracies. Yeah, really are. So the implication of conspiracy theory that they're all fake is yes. not true. There yes. are... They're not always the ones that the conspiracy theorists... That's my point, in a way. Yes. There are real conspiracies, there are conspiracy theories, but they often don't... Don't match up. And as for the rest of it, the thing of people who are running it that we, we're not really... Uh, and I'm probably not addressing what you're saying directly, and I'm sorry. But, but, but I'm obviously but, a, ra- a rambler anyway. So when you think, for instance, about the New York Times and its role in the society and how it's portrayed by, on the right as this sort of mad left-wing sort of lunatic organisation, which is so far from the truth. And it is, in fact, an arm of government. The, and the, the absolute... Not that we needed proof of this or we needed to know about, you know, Judith Miller and germ warfare in in Iraq or any of these things. But um, when the United States, together with Siemens in Germany and Israel, developed the Stuxnet worm, the purpose of which was to blow up the Iranian nuclear facility, and at a time when you could go online and see a German uh, computer expert... Daily, my son t- used to take me through these things about you know what the Stuxnet worm, what was, how it had been released, and a total media silence in the United States. And the New York Times would not write about the Stuxnet worm. Somewhere in the New York Times, I find I found someone saying, a reporter saying, if you want not to be spoken to in Washington again, just say the word Stuxnet. And then at a certain time when the political opinion was such that the uh, government had been too soft in Iran, there was about two or three weeks in which there was really intensive reporting from the Times on the Stuxnet worm, and then never again. So the United States of America essentially bombed Iran, and the New York Times didn't say a word about it, and no one in America really knows about it. So that's a, you know, of, of one of the organs of truth and, and, and is telling lies continually in silence. And do you think that the age that we're in now, the, the internet age, the age in which uh, the New York Times is not the only place people go to get their news, is net positive in this respect, in that uh, you know, the people who are interested in these things can find each other? Or is it, it, it kind of makes it easier to paint them as conspiracy theorists yes, because so. they're just talking to each other? Yes, and we all... You know, there's all this stuff we can find on the net, which we really like, because it suits us to find people we agree with and who think things are foul and the way we think they're foul. But because they're unsubstantiated and, and don't go out into the broad web of the community, they have less power, don't you think? I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'd like to interview you a bit. I do think. Yeah. <laughs> that, that question. So the, your new book is about, among other things, race. Um, and 
I'm not making this all about Tocqueville. I am making this all about Tocqueville, but that's Please partly don't. because, you know, I think he's... And, and thinking about the United States, thinking about Britain, thinking about Australia. I mean, Tocqueville looked at American politics. It's true then, it's true now. And race was on the surface. You know, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. It's the, the central dividing line. It's poisonous in many ways. And, you know, the age of Trump just tells us that in spades. Race and religion in America are all the way through politics. That's not true in this country. I mean, race and religion are important in Britain, mm. but actually, I think it's still the case that class, possibly, and geography matter more. Now, Australia, I don't know, it's somewhere... Religion's not really... I mean, Australia is the place where you can have a prime minister who doesn't believe in God, and it's no big deal. It would be a huge deal in the United States. Julia Gillard was explicitly atheist, right? I mean, she actually... Yes. She wasn't sort of agnostic, she... Yeah. yeah. So... That is very, very... And when I, lived, when I lived in Australia, and perhaps it was the little bubble I lived in, but I didn't know anyone who went to church. And I came to the United States. Very common to know people who go to church. Uh, it still seems strange to me, but they do it. So um, that's a big difference between those, uh, those two countries. Okay, so, so that's religion. But race in Australia, is that, you know, is that an amnesia story too? Or is it... You, you're writing about the 50s... You're writing about a complicated history. As you move from the United States to Australia, do you think there's a very big difference in the way that race plays out in politics? Yes, there's a huge difference. And, 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 and if, if we put the sad fate of those immigrants who are in jail to one side for the moment, a weird fate when they're trying to come to a country where people were convicts coming in boats, but never mind about that. Um, the race is very more complicated in the United States. I think and when you want to talk about you know, sins of foundation, the attempt at genocide in Australia and the you know, dispossession of the indigenous people and you know, the wreckage of the culture is something that anybody can see. And certainly if you went to Australia tomorrow, and you might go, and I, I was in Perth, which is certainly not you know, the most liberal of cities, and in, particularly in race matters, it's not great, but on the television every day, there were things which were about Aboriginal land rights, uh, Aboriginal issues. It was a really big deal. You would say we were really dealing with it well. And certainly things have changed in these matters. But there's still enormous resistance to taking any responsibility for our history and really grasping our history. The book that I wrote really is is a history of white people. It's a history of white people in Australia because the whole story of Australia and the indigenous people, it, it wasn't, if it wasn't for white people, if it wasn't for the Brits, in fact, who we were descended from, none of this awful situation would have occurred. And so, you know, somebody like me has a wonderful life and I'm the beneficiary of a genocide. And there are people who are my fellow citizens who have been disadvantaged and fucked with who are sort of paying the price for that. And it's worth thinking about, I think. So I think if what we know to be true is true, then what should we do? I mean, are all those Aboriginal people going to take everything away from us? Because that's morally, we think probably that that's right. And, and I think we're terrified. And so you get a, a Prime Minister like John Howard, who can't bear people incorporating this history into the current narrative, and they call it a black armband view of history. In other words, if you're going to think that, if you're going to be in mourning for where you are, you know, you're not going to survive, mate. So 
I think it sort of feels like, look, mate, you know, we fought a war. We came here, we took this stuff. This is, it was theirs, but it's ours now. And um, you've got it. And it's nice, isn't it? So you're going to protect it and look after it, or are you going to sit there whining about it? That's what they think white guilt is. And I think one of the things about the book, I went to Australia thinking I was going to have a hard time, and it turned out that I didn't. And it turned out I think the book was welcomed. And that a number of really credible, uh, very smart Aboriginal intellectuals and activists embraced the book. And a lot of, I found myself in situations in, in big readings, I only did, I did about six. And in four of them, somebody would stand up, and it was always a woman with somebody about my age, so over 70 probably, and they'd grown up in the country, and they would tell the story about, you know, I like to ride, I used to like to ride on my horse, and there was a bit, I really didn't like to go to that part down by the creek because my grandmother told me that's where they rounded up the Aboriginal people and shot them all. And it was told sort of matter-of-factly or in a puzzle way. And I think there's a lot of people that are carrying those sort of stories that didn't know where to put them. So I think there's something about the novel that because it's told from the point of view of white people, because the characters, I hope, one could love, and the characters who one loves, one finds expressing numbers of ideas that we would call racist, even if casually, sort of like their people. Mm. And because the book has quite a lot of humour in it, I think it's maybe might make it a little easier to talk about these things. So to answer your question about where the conversation stands, well, there is a sort of a public conversation, but there's also this, like there is almost everywhere about race, a sort of a tension and an anxiety and people having a sort of an inability and a fear of talking about it. And not that I think novels save the world or anything like that. And, and, and the number of people who read the book will be statistically terribly small. But I think the one thing that that book might do is help people find a way to talk, talk about this in a human way. One last question to sort of try and tie it together a bit. You live in New York now. When you when you go to Australia, you, you're living in Trump's America. Mm. I'm not. <laughs> I just see it from the outside. Mm. Do you feel going from contemporary America to contemporary Australia, you're moving between two completely different worlds, or do you feel because you just described you know, the good reception of your novel in mm. Australia, this sort of intelligent, open-minded mm. conversation? Do you feel that America and the rest of the the West, for want of a better word, are moving in different directions, or are they going where we're going to follow? Big question to end. It's very hard to say. Um, I, 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 but I, I do think that one of the things, as a colonial, well, the traumas of colonialism, uh, one of the things you inherit, or we inherited, is a great you know, tendency to look elsewhere and to follow others. And Australians, at the same time as being proclaiming themselves to be very independent, are also great, as far as the United States goes, and as far as this country has been, to great followers. So we don't really quite know. And the behaviour of the United States legitimises awful behaviour in other places. The Philippines does come to mind immediately, but in Australia too. So so I don't know and I can't know. Peter Carey's new novel is called A Long Way From Home and it is, as they say, available everywhere. 
Next week, we're going to be talking to the Italian-American political philosopher Nadia Urbinati about what's going on in Italy, but also about what the hell is going on with democracy, our favourite theme. On a slightly different note, we have some merchandise. We have, and I really mean this, some very nice tote bags. If you would like to get hold of one, go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, and we will tell you how. We're growing all the time. We're delighted that we're getting lots of new listeners. If you are new to this podcast and you're enjoying it, do please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps and it helps other people to find this podcast too. And join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.